0: Take your industry insights to the next level by becoming a restaurant business subscriber. Go to restaurantbusinessonline.com, click on the blue subscribe button in the upper right-hand corner, enter promo code PODCAST23, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T 23, to get your first month of RB Basic for free. After promo period, current rates apply. Now, please enjoy this episode of A Deeper Dive.
1: How did Potbelly turn its business around? Hello, this is Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Bob Wright, the CEO of the Chicago-based sandwich chain Potbelly. Bob has been at the helm of the fast casual for three years and talks about taking a struggling brand in the midst of the pandemic and shifting it back into growth mode. Potbelly closed about 30 locations that year, but the brand has seen strong sales in the past couple of years. The company expects to grow unit this year by 10%. We asked Bob how the company has done that. And he talks about the ch- getting the chain's price value equation right without resorting to discounts or hamming, hammering the company's profit margins. He also talks about the company's efforts to improve operations, its development strategy, and why Potbelly plans to franchise it going forward. We're talking Potbelly on a deeper dive, so please have a listen. I am here with Bob Wright. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be with you. All right, super. So what is going on at Potbelly?
0: Well, we uh we continue to have uh a, another great year here at Potbelly. We're looking forward to closing out 2023 very strong. You know, we've had we're into about our third year of our strategic plan that we're operating under. We've got a five pillar strategic plan that, that's had our team focused since the middle of the pandemic, when many of my team started working here. But uh, at the heart of our initial objectives was to start driving positive traffic back into our shops. In the restaurant business, nothing signifies core health more than growing customer counts and and driving traffic. And uh, I'm happy to say that the reflection on 2023 is that we've done a very nice job with that. We're in a great place with our people. Uh, we, we love the food that we're putting out. and and uh, driving value for our customers and uh, we've had a lot of success in the digital space too it's it's been an exciting three years for sure mm-hmm. how are you able to drive traffic what, what what did you do to do that well i'd go back to our five pillar strategy because they the first four pillars of that the first one is about great food at a great value uh, are, are very special people delivering good vibe service to our customers. That's a phrase that we use. It's a, there's a level of freedom in the service experience that really brings out the personality of our people. Uh, we are very focused on operations throughput. You know some some you know kind of not so sexy things about scheduling and balance schedules and encouraging our, our uh, operators to to balance out their time, as well as the general managers. That's the third pillar. And the fourth one has been about digital marketing, digital connections, our perks program. The fifth pillar, just to mention it, that's, that's uh, our franchise growth acceleration work that we're doing, but that's unit count growth. The first four, though, really are the balanced approach to, to bring in the very best that Potbelly has to offer and, and making that connection with our customers. Yeah, um, we had When I got here, we had an issue with value. The, the response typically from the pot belly customer was that they love the food, but were no longer really happy with what they had to pay or what they got for what they did pay. And, you know, it, candidly, it just needed to be addressed. The, the, we'd been losing traffic for a number of years. We've been compensating with, with uh, raising prices, which unfortunately drove more lost traffic. And so what we did is we rebuilt the menu. Our original size sandwiches and our big sandwiches, we made bigger and we put more meat and cheese in them. We made we made it a better sandwich for the customer. We did raise prices a little bit on those two sandwiches, but not as much as we increased the value of the food that we put into it. And then we brought in a skinny size sandwich which is a it's our smallest size which made the entry point a lower price point for people to come in. So completely reengineered the the portioning on all three of those the skinny now you can get with a salad you can get with a soup and you know look customers customers are looking for great food uh, but they won't reward you with their repeat visits if they don't have a great experience and they don't have a great value they mm-hmm. they don't process it in the same mathematical way that us restaurant operators do but they do in their heart and they're like yeah that was that was great and i you know i got two people in and out of there for maybe 20 bucks, 25 bucks for a fast, casual lunch. That's great value. How did you um, increase the size of your sandwiches without hammering margins? Well, like I say, we did raise prices uh, on those two sizes. Um, But, you know, I think the first part was we kind of had to accept the reality that we, we had a problem and we had to address it. And the margins on the third size that we introduced helped balance that out. Uh, but the other thing is, if you if you did look at the balance between food cost and labor cost, most of what we captured in margins came through labor, not food. It's a great formula. It's a very pro-customer formula. Give them the best value and find the efficiency in the shop to offset it so that we can protect the margins. Yeah, yeah. We hear over and over and over and over again. It's
1: absolutely true that you know value isn't necessarily just making your food cheaper. It's making Mm-mm. sure that customers feel like they're getting what uh, they want for the money that they're spending. And my perception of potbelly is pretty much right on with what you're saying. Historically, is it's never, you know, I always felt that just I was paying more than what I was was getting for that. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and uh, and we had to fix it. You know, uh, I think that. I think, especially when you think about our shops, our brand in the fast casual space, and you know, Jonathan, I say all the time we are a we are a fast casual restaurant concept that's got a sandwich based menu. We're not a sub shop, and so we we operate in this space where our, our sandwiches are certainly shaped like all the sub shops sandwiches, but it's a different concept. It's right in the sweet spot of fast casual in in terms of restaurant alternatives. So. We think about a potbelly visit through that lens, that occasion, that, that fast casual consumer. They do have a little bit more disposable income, but they also expect higher quality or they're not going to give you their visits. They expect a good value. They want a differentiated experience. They want, they want the whole package, not just a great place to run in at a counter and grab food and go. If they want to grab food and go, they want us to be good at that, but they, they enjoy, I mean, we we enjoy more than half of our customers are still walking across that threshold every day. Mm-hmm. So that that part's really important to us. And once once we understood that consumer occasion and that's our customer, well, then being properly placed in that fast casual value chain is really important to us. Um, our average eater check is uh, only a couple dollars higher than a QSR visit. Mm-hmm. And so now our average check is higher, uh, and Fast Casual's average check is naturally higher because in QSR, you have so many single-party customer checks that come through. A lot of drive-through businesses of a single person, right? But when a person's making decisions about a meal for them or for someone else, they're usually thinking about it divided by the number of people that are that are there. And so for a couple dollars more than a QSR visit, you can get a really great meal at Belly now. And we, we like the spot where we, we stay closer to the bottom end of fast casual, not the top end of fast mm-hmm. casual. So we become even a better value there. And uh, it's been important to us, even through all the inflation that we've had since we rebuilt that menu back in 2020 and 2021, we've been very, very diligent about only taking enough price to offset the food and labor inflation that we were kind of managing through during that period of time, because we, we know that we don't want to be back in that spot there are brands that have really improved their margins with pricing through this this time. We have not. We've improved it with efficiency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I
1: want to uh, shift to operations because you you mentioned uh, uh, you mentioned that and said a phrase that I think that I've said many times. Operations are not sexy, but it's really important. And I think in two thousand, heading into two thousand twenty-four, you know, the consumer is paying a lot more for the restaurant visit than they did three three four years. Yeah, and I think that it is more important now than probably ever that a restaurant company gets these operations right because consumers are spending more for their meals and that means their
0: expectations are getting get higher what have you done on that front yeah first of all i think you're absolutely right i think customers gave a lot of grace during the pandemic for subpar service and standards and staffing and friendliness. And they they're, they don't want to give that grace anymore. They want to get back to the day where they feel like the customer. They want to feel appreciated. They want to feel cared for. They want to feel like whoever's making their food actually enjoys and loves making great food. And so our operations efforts have, have kind of focused on that outcome. We've got a great COO who who embraces this responsibility like like no operator I've worked with before. And so you get down to some of the fundamentals. One of the things it's, it, it's been with us now for about two and a half years, but we do have a labor guide in place and the brand did not have a labor guide. Um, hmm. So our hours-based labor guide means that we're properly staffing each of the shifts. Um, frankly, in, you know, in the past pre-pandemic, the brand probably was very well staffed at lunch. Most of the GMs were working lunch. Most of them weren't working weekends. We didn't have a balance of that schedule. Our GMs still enjoy a great work-life balance, but they're working different parts of the week so that they've got their influence on those parts of the week. And we're properly staffed at dinner and on the weekends and at, at lunch now. You go deeper than that, the, the training materials, when we rolled out the new menu, we actually rebuilt the training materials too with a, a service centricity coming first. Uh, the engagement that you get at the load station, that's where you first start your sandwich the The encouragement for freedom and banter with uh between our associates and our customers our customer feedback tells us they love that about pop that I can go through the line and there's a little chat that, that happens along the way um, and our employees love that too by the way um, and then some of the the system centricity of of what the ops team has put in place has been really important, especially as we're expanding our franchise base so We've got. We talk about our good vibes service. We actually have a good vibes visit checklist um, that checks these these softer skills that you're looking for during the visit. That we're tasting the food. We're not just checking the procedures. We're we're evaluating. We're evaluating the level of music uh, and temperature and sound and cleanliness and the table organization. Uh, we're, we're we're discussing the service model with each of our associates while we're doing it. so. You get you sort of institutionalize the things that are really important and they continue to stay elevated and stay important. And then we, we did implement another system about the same time we implemented the labor guide. A lot of companies, most companies have it, but our customer feedback system uh, was dramatically improved. We've used technology also. Uh, We've talked in our public statements about our potbelly digital kitchen. So with 38, well, depends on the quarter, but 36 to 39% of our business now comes through digital channels. Um, and Top Belly has always had two service lines, one in the front that you, know, you go through when you go through the shop. And then there was one on the back that was when the brand was growing, was built to service the catering needs of the business. Well, we converted that back line to handle all of our digital business. So our, our digital customers are getting our very best And our inline customers and our takeout customers are getting our very best. And they don't feel like you're more focused on that other order that I can't even see the customer for than you are me. And I'm standing right in front of you. So you got to we had to organize our operations around that new business model. Um, Even after we did that, we recognized there was a layer of technology we put in place. So We've added Potbelly Digital Kitchen. We're rolling that out. And that digitizes and sequences all of those digital orders so that the people work in the back line can just focus on the food and the accuracy. Um, and, you know, frankly, we measure a lot more than we used to measure. So we're measuring customer satisfaction. We're measuring orders ready on time, food temperature, food quality. We see those numbers all improve when we install PDK. We can also improve throughput. Uh, you know, that's the customer speed of service. So it's a I gave you a few examples, but the bottom line is it's it's systems and execution against those systems that creates that predictability.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned digital. What what uh, what have you been doing to drive digital um, digital sales like that? Uh, our our number one advantage, I think, with our digital drive has been our perks program. But again. Uh, one of the early investments we made after we rebuilt the strategy was that we implemented a brand new tech stack, a new custom built web interface, an app interface. We changed our order integration um, engine that ran behind the scenes. We changed our loyalty engine. So we, we refaced our loyalty program and we changed the engine that allowed us to, to leverage that. This is a brand that traditionally spent Uh, very little amount of money on marketing. Um, And over the last three years, and especially since our CMO, David Daniels, has come on board, we've been incrementally investing more and more in marketing, all of that done through digital channels. We still spend less as a percentage of sales than almost all of our restaurant competitors. But as we've stepped that up, we measure every incremental spend and look for the returns for the, the awareness that's coming back, the traffic that's coming back, and, uh, and we funnel as many of those, that digital awareness driving, we funnel as much of that reaction into our digital channels, our app, our web, and our perks and our program so that we can develop that relationship. In fact, last quarter in Q3, as part of our, our public statements, uh, we, made, we, made the, uh, we made our investors aware that last quarter was the first time that our owned channels make up the majority of our digital, uh, our digital traffic. And, you know, for a lot of brands, that's still primarily done through third-party delivery companies. So we continue to migrate people over. We also had a 60% increase in perks member acquisition year over year. So the rate of acquiring new perks members is not only, uh, not only the, the number of perks members, not only really pleasing to us, but the rate with which we're acquiring them is accelerating. Uh, we do a promotion on a on a BOGO, for example, we do a a handful of those in a year's time you buy one, get one free sandwich like on our our birthday, we'll do something like that. It's channeled back to uh the perks account, so anything we do we're we're speaking to the broader consumer, we're reminding them the best version of the brand is with your perks account, and uh, you're gonna get free sandwiches, you're gonna get special offers, you get double points on your on your perks acquisition on Thursdays. Uh, not a ton of discounting, but it's it's applied to the people that are most loyal to the brand. I think a, a lot of the things it seems to me
1: that you're describing, you know, the, the labor stuff, the, the the digital stuff, a lot of this sorta of seems to fit and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but 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 Podbelly was getting to was was operating like uh, a smaller chain than it actually was and it needed to sort of get to a different you know it needed to prepare for or operate more like the 400 some unit concept that it is
0: is that fair to say oh yeah I, i think that's accurate yeah there are there are a number of things that we've been able to do and continue to work on you know into the future that that you would have expected to find at a company, our size and our age. You know, we'll celebrate our 47th birthday uh, coming up next year. And, um, you know, many of the things I've described, yeah, those are the types of things that you would put in to take advantage of the scale. Um, Now, it's particularly important to us because we're also returning to growth. You know, we've spoken about we'll grow next year our unit count by about 10% of our base, almost all through franchise. And, you know, if you're going to grow and grow through franchising, you, you have to have those things in place in order to create kind of the predictable experience and, and the consistency that you want to have so the brand doesn't suffer as you get bigger. Mm-hmm.
1: So now you've been uh, you, see, you mentioned franchising and you've you signed a, a pretty a few substantial deals.
0: Um, is that that's going to be the primary way you grow uh, in the future? Yeah. Primarily, we want, to, we want to focus on franchising. Um, look, I've been in the franchise business. I started delivering pizzas when I was 19 at Domino's, and I've been in the business ever since. So I'm working on my 37th year now. And uh, the power of franchisees is, uh, is, is what's behind so many great brands. I know there are company-operated brands, but the franchise brands and great franchisees that have helped build those brands are uh, just, just impressive people. They care deeply about their business. They like the local operation and the investment in their community. Franchisees, no surprise, they like to operate where they live and where they shop and where their families are. And they're putting their personal stamp on it. I know, I know many franchisees in the industry that are working on their third and fourth generation of ownership, so it becomes a family business. And there's a lot of power in that. Um, add to that that you know, obviously, as a company, as a corporation, it's a it's a great way to grow with a lot less capital uh and in a capital constrained environment like we were, especially in the pandemic, we're looking at returning to growth. That's very important to us. The other thing about the timing of it is that we have we have a desire to further penetrate a lot of the markets that we're already in and then fill in markets in between so the geographic dispersion of the growth model ahead of us would have you recognize franchising might be the very best way to do that you know we we wouldn't have had Northwest Arkansas on our corporate priority list, but when you have a franchise group that that's their home and that's where they want to build out the brand, then, you know, you get concentration in parts of the country that, that you wouldn't have prioritized initially. Um, so yeah, we're, we're very excited about it. Um, we spent a lot of time putting the infrastructure in place to support that growth too. I mentioned many of the operating systems, the marketing systems, but then the development, uh, machine that's necessary to create double digit unit growth, uh, is, is something that frankly has not really ever been in place here. So, uh, yeah. we're, we're looking forward to getting that rolling. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm looking, actually looking on a map, you mentioned geographic dispersion mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, for 400 some unit brand. You've got obviously you got your concentration in Chicago, where you've got a lot of. I mean, I I, I will tell you that's one of, one of the great things about Potbelly. You you Potbelly fans love Potbelly. Yes. Um. And and as kind of where you're based in Chicago, but you got locations in Florida, you got locations in Texas, you got locations in in uh, in, in Washington, you got some some in the Northeast and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would seem to me that, um, you know, not only franchising, but then just focusing on these markets in which you're you're already in would probably be a smart uh, go-forward strategy.
0: Yeah, one of the – I mean, we're in 32 states. We're 430-unit location in 32 states and literally coast to coast and and Canada almost to Mexico. Um, And it's unusual. Uh, you know you wouldn't you wouldn't expect to find that most four hundred ish unit brands are still either regional or super regional, and a lot of the questions that that those brands will field are along the lines of can your brand really travel um, there's a lot of examples of great regional brands that have continued to try to stretch and and don't always have success doing it. Our brand travels really well, and we know that from experience we don't and, and because of the way we're marketing, for example, we can be underpenetrated and still have a presence that, that uh, creates great success financially at the unit level. But we need to penetrate those markets. Um, the other benefit of being as, as far flung as we are is we had to have a really creative distribution solution to cover all of that territory. And but for primarily, but for California, uh if a franchisee approaches us uh, and it may not have even been a focus market of ours, we've got distribution we can we can help them get open um, and it won't be it won't be us finding a new distribution center or something so it wasn't it wasn't how most brands grew back when it was growing, but it is actually a little bit of a a, a little bit of a a strength that we can leverage today because we have that, that presence so far flung across the U.S.
1: Yeah. Well, the unusual thing is, you know, when I see a map like this, yeah, when I see a map like this, actually, I usually see it in franchising. I mm-hmm. don't see it. And you're still only what, like what, 10%-ish uh, we're
0: Yeah, we're approaching 20. We have sold some 20.
1: Uh, company units this year. Yeah. 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 Um, but usually – Usually, mm-hmm. you know, company run. They like to stay in their markets, yep. you know, unless they're they're they're, they're a different. One potbelly took a different strategy, um, you know, much to their credit, using their own money to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if if I've heard people call it a flag planning strategy, and mm-hmm. and and that was kind of what was done. And what we're doing is we look at those underpenetrated markets, and we. We have been willing to refranchise uh, some of our own company units if we got development deals that went with it so and we've announced some of the bigger ones specifically, otherwise we're just rolling up the totals as we go mm-hmm. through each quarter. but you know one of the more recent ones that we announced was with the Royal Restaurant Group, and they're going to build thirty six locations in eight years uh, in three different dMAs with us uh, but we sold them four company units in Central Ohio. Yeah. Our, uh, our research said Central Ohio should be a 21 to 25 unit market. Um, we sell you four, you'll build 17. Um, that's, you know, we don't love giving up the earnings on those company locations, but that makes perfect sense to put those in the hands of a franchisee who's gonna leverage that base of operations, be able to train their own people and, and get rolling, developing more and filling out a market that, you know, we've been, in, we've been in Columbus, Ohio for 20 years. It's and about time locations weeks. there? Uh, there were more than that at one point. Uh, there were some poor real estate choices back when the market was being entered. But, you know, in 20 years, we should have finished building this market out. And so we're going to do it in the next eight.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to ask uh, this, this uh, question before. Well, actually, let me, let me ask this quick question. Do, do you foresee continued sales of company stores to franchisees, or how do you see that going?
0: Well, like I say, we we announced when we talked about our long-term franchising strategy that we would sell up to 100 um, to catalyze growth. Uh, what we're finding uh, is that we're franchising a lot of multi-unit deals that aren't requiring that. And so I, we're still willing to do it. I think you'll see us be more stingy with the number of units that we let go of in 2024 and maybe 2025. Um, but um, it's not a refranchising strategy like most other brands have put out there, where we're we're just we, we're eager to to do some financial engineering and get out from under the capital burdens and all of that. There's not that much advantage for us in in doing that. We don't we don't own the real estate like other brands, where they can collect the you know they can collect the rent off the property as well as the royalty stream and get out from under this massive weight of capital like Drive Through QSR has, for example. So. Uh, the only reason we'll do it is for growth and, and we're finding that we don't need to do it as much to keep that growth going. So yeah, we'll do a few, but not as many.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I guess one last question I want to get to is, is uh,
1: like some of your, you've, you had uh, Pop really had a hard time during the pandemic, probably more than a lot of change uh, because of you have, you know, that big presence, for instance, Chicago and, and, and certain urban markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you, at least it seems to me that you're, you're, you're benefiting on, on that return. How's that going right now? How do oh, yeah, you see it's the going,
0: it's going really well. Look, we, we, we don't really talk about recovery anymore. Uh, yeah. I, think it, I think all of our growth now uh, is, is truly being earned with our efforts. Um, but, you know, Q1 was still lapping Omicron from the year before. So there's still some of that recovery in our, our year this year. And you're right. With 90% of the units owned by the company in the early days, it was like a 60% hit to our top line. Uh, I mean, that, that does not flow through the company P&L well at all. We were losing money and, and bleeding cash and kind of in crisis mode when I stepped in and, in 2020. My CFO preceded me here by just a few months, and and he's terrific. He's been a great partner ever since. Um, And many of the drastic actions that you would need to take early on were taken. Uh, But we used that time to crack open all the leases. Uh, We did close about 30 locations that really just had very poor leases. Uh, Not all of them were just lowest volume or anything, but they just were leases that were never going to work as a business. So we we took advantage of that of the time to exit those locations, got the system a lot healthier, but immediately started working on those things like I mentioned earlier, the menu, the tech stack, and the, the lowest investment solutions we could find that would have the highest return so that we could come out of the pandemic stronger than ever and, and find that momentum. Um, and i tell you, it hit us, yeah, central business districts, we call them CBDs, uh, make up about 19% of the portfolio. Uh, they were hit very hard, but some Suburbs were hit. Drive-throughs did pretty well, but not enough mm-hmm. to overcome what, um, you know, what the rest of the portfolio was doing. Airports obviously basically shut down in early days and then finally started coming back. I'm very proud of the team. Today, we are, we're probably staffed with uh, the management team. I, I've got the most pride in this management team I've had in my career. And then as we go deeper in the organization, the district managers and the regional operators and our franchise business consultants are, are the best, pound for pound, best team we've ever had at Potbell. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a combination of all of those efforts to say, well, we're in the middle of the, probably the biggest financial firefight we're, we're ever going to deal with, but we're going to survive and we're going to thrive. So let's make every step coming out of this towards that longer range goal. And I think keep keeping people focused on the their eyes on the prize was was important um, so I, I look you have to acknowledge good fortune too um, prior to the pandemic, the company was a hundred percent debt free public company, and so to survive the financial strain that we did um, certainly was was in large part due to that we were very healthy going into the into the pandemic other other restaurants that have failed. And as you know, what, 15, 18% of American restaurants closed permanently. Today, we see that as a big market share opportunity, but that's still very painful. Those are our friends uh, in the industry, and there was a lot of pain that went through it, for sure. Bob, this was fantastic. Really appreciate you joining me this week on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Spoons. Artwork by Nico Hines. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening.